Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. Good morning, good morning. I hope you've had a good chance to chat with one another. This time we're just going to come back. If you'd grab a seat. The greeting time is always one of my favorite times, just to hear all the voices and chatter, and um, I think that's just one of the beautiful things about Sunday morning is we get to see one another and catch up and, and hopefully share some funny stories and good stories. And so, uh, good morning again. We're, we're glad that you're here. Uh, if you don't know me or haven't seen me, my name is Mark, and recently just got hired on staff here at Gospel Community Church, which I'm super thankful for. Super thankful for that. Not only the cheers, but just thankful for your support uh, in every way as the church supporting me um, in the work of the ministry to help love on you and equip you to also do the work of the ministry. And so um, I just want to say I'm grateful. I'm glad to be here. And um, my role here is to, to oversee and direct the family ministries to all the kids and stuff that's going on back there. And also our discipleship ministries, which are gospel communities. Um, and maybe some other things that we'll have going on, as well as volunteers that meet on Sunday mornings. Um, and I just wanted to add one thing um, to Brian's announcement this morning. It's just the pre-service prayer. Um, please come. It's at 9.15 in the morning. Um, we're not asking you to come every week, but, but, but once a month or, or maybe twice a month or whatever you're able to do, commit to that. Prayer is something um, it's just, that comes from our heart that, just, that says, hey, God, we, we place our trust in you. We realize that you're sovereign over what's going on. And it's a way, really, uh, I can testify to this to encourage one another. Um, so thankful for the prayers of you and even to hear the, the answered prayers um, this morning. So please come at 915. Make it a priority for you if you can. Um, so that's that by way of introduction. Uh, we're going to revisit the text today in Malachi. Uh, you ha- we'll have some Bibles around you. Um, if you do not own a Bible... That Bible is our gift to you. Please take it home, write your name in it, use it, read it, uh, bring it back, and and use it as you visit us again. Um, If you're new here, we're really glad that you're just investigating the gospel and investigating Christ and what's going on, and and we hope that you hear the gospel this morning and that your heart is touched by that message. Um, And we're going to turn to the book of Malachi. The book of Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. Um... It's going to come right before Matthew in the Gospels. It's a very small book. Don't be shy about using the, um, the beginning of the, the, the book there to find the page number. So um, nothing wrong with that. So let's jump in. Our series is called Empty Religion. So by way of introduction, let's just kind of, let, let's read our minds on the story of God's people and what's going on. Let's frame our minds in history and consider the setting and the culture of the surrounding people of the time. Uh, so the, we're talking about the Israelites. They had been taken over by the Assyrians, by the Babylonians, and eventually the Persians. And under the Persian rule, they had actually been allowed to return home. They had been in exile um, for 70 years. And as you can imagine, there's a lot of excitement to return to their homeland and continue their old way of life, where they could rebuild the temple, worship God, and receive the blessings from the Lord. And... Where we find ourselves in Malachi is about actually a hundred years after they had returned. So the temple had been rebuilt. They were worshiping as normal. They were together in community. 
But yet we're going to find in the story that they had kind of continued to hold on to some of the, the foreign practices and rituals and pleasures that they had become accustomed to in exile. And so that's where the message of God is found in, in Malachi. It's, it's coming at this time, and it's a message of really stern rebuke. And I think we need to feel that, and I hope that you feel that this morning. Even though the Israelites had found their way back to the structures of living as they had, um, to commune with God and fellowship with him, with the temple, um, we find in our text today that something was missing. And I think that's where we get our term empty religion, right? Religious things, what are we doing? What we're, we're going to church. You're here this morning. Maybe you go to your GC group in the middle of the week. Maybe you take communion. Maybe you volunteer. Maybe you pray. Maybe you read your Bible. Maybe you tithe. Those are all religious activities. But the question becomes, what's, what is behind those activities? What's going on in your heart? So today we're going to be considering the woes of an ancient community of God's people. And they lived in a time before Jesus came. And this is just a way to preface our minds and hearts before we hear this message. We must realize that although this is a distant time and place and culture, that we can identify with them. So don't hear this as like, oh, that's just the Israelites. But for me, it's just, I don't have those problems. Um, that's, not, that's not my issue. We can identify with them. We may not have a temple, and listen closely here, we may not have a temple, but as Corinthians tells us, through Christ, our bodies are called a temple of the Holy Spirit. We may not sacrifice animal offerings to the Lord, but as Paul tells us in Romans, our bodies are a living sacrifice to God. We may not be priests, but through Christ in the New Testament, we are all called ambassadors of his gospel of reconciliation and mediators of his gospel to the world. We may not, in fact, be the Israelites, but we are God's chosen people. For those of us who believe, we are, as 1 Peter says, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. So let us remember, as we hear the text today, to read the text interactively and identify with the Israelites because we have those things for those of us who believe. So the message of Malachi is an invitation to evaluate yourself because you're not measuring up what is required of you. And I want that to kind of be the theme today. Evaluate yourself because you are not measuring up to what is required of you. So here's two thoughts, and I want this to kind of permeate everything we hear today. And I think it, I think it kind of sums up the message very briefly. Write these down if you're a note taker. Number one, our sin is costly. Our sin is costly. It costs a great deal. And number two, and this one might hurt, our sin is not private. Our sin is not private. So by way of illustration, just to kind of get our minds into what these people were thinking, um, I, I can like it to this. I, I was a history major in college, and here's the thing I loved about being a history major. Uh, history tests are always essay and short answer. Now, some of you are probably kind of like rolling your eyes like, oh, those are the worst. Give me the multiple choice, and at least I have a chance. Um, but here's, here's, why, here's my argument for the essay test. All I really need is a few facts. I just need to know a few facts, and I can just fluff up the rest of the whole thing, 
and at least I'm going to get partial credit. If I take a multiple choice, I'm done for. I've got four, I've got like a 25% chance, maybe. I'm much more likely to get 50% or above by just having a few facts and then basically writing the same sentence three times over in different words. I, I know how that works very well as a history major. Uh, or how, how about another example? Uh, for those of you who are maybe being in college because high schools don't do this, uh, have you ever taken a uh, class, pass, no pass? It's a beautiful thing, pass, no pass. Uh, at a first glance, you think, well, okay, pass, no pass. Yeah, I either pass or I fail. I don't. Um, but how do you get a pass? Well, most classes to get a pass, you need a 70% or better. But it shows up on your record as pass. But indeed, maybe you got the lowest C possible known to man with all the extra credit assignments, and you get a pass. And I just want to describe to you that that's the heart of the people here. If I just know a few facts, if I just get 70%, I get a pass. And that's what we've been kind of learning through chapter one. And in fact, that's just not the way it works with God. You either have 100% or you have zero. You either are perfect or you are not. And what the people were doing at this time is offering sacrifices that were, let's say, 70%, hoping to get a pass. And God did not approve. That, that is the manner and heart in which these people are approaching God. So let's get into the text here. Malachi chapter 2. We're gonna, we have a lot of material to cover today. Um, and I'll try to move us through as quickly as possible. So let's read the first section here. The messenger is specifically directing the priests as we find out immediately. And now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring, and spread dung on your faces, and the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. This is kind of a hard, <laughs> a hard place to start. Uh, just to kind of get our minds, the, the Levites uh, or the priests, they basically had two main jobs. Their job was to administer worship and, and um, sort of administer the, the offerings and the sacrificial worship and act as sort of the go-betweens between an unholy people and a holy temple and a holy God. They were also, secondly, supposed to teach God's law, teach his word. And it's clear from chapter 1 that they were not administering worship well. And so he says, indeed, I have already cursed you. These things are already going wrong. Why? Because you haven't taken it to heart. And here we get at our empty religion question. They're doing the sacrifices, but maybe they're just giving 70%. So what are they missing? They're missing the heart behind the matter. So what does it mean to take something to heart? Uh, here's some maybe bigger words. Uh, orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. So what that means is orthodoxy, right thinking, correct thinking, correct instruction, truth, correct doctrine, doctrine correct belief, leads to orthopraxy, right practice, right living. 
right exercise. It means obedience. And so they were not taking God's law to heart because they were not believing what he said and then acting from that. Their practices were not coming from a law of God that was written on their heart. And I think we can identify with that if you're honest with yourself. Some of the things we, we do on the outside might appear nice, um, but when we think about where they're coming from, it might be totally selfish and ugly and prideful. I would urge you to be thinking about yourself as we talk about these things. As Psalm 139 says, search me, O God, and, and see if there's any w- wicked way in me. I think, I think that is really going to be a theme for today, and I hope you take that to heart. So moving forward, curse your blessings. There's this, there's this big curse, and I, I want this to, to, to sink in. The, the blessings of God through his covenant with the Levites and the people, uh, through the priesthood, they, it, it spanned all of the aspects of their role, so their status, their practice, and the return they got for their work. So therefore, when God says he will curse them and their blessings, he was referring to their whole office and duty and outcome of their work. It will affect their privileged status of being able to approach God and be called sons and servants of the Lord. And it will affect their function of pronouncing blessing on the people and their sacrificial offerings, which we have already learned that they were grumbling about and upset about already. They were viewing it as a great burden. And lastly, as we'll find out later in chapter 3, it's going to actually affect the material benefits offered by God through their role. So when he says he's going to curse them, it is every single thing about them. It is your status. It is your role in life. I'm going to curse it, and I'm going to curse all the returns for it. So this is, this is not a light matter. And I think when we see the word dung, it, it's really easy to turn into our 12-year-old selves and be like giggly about it. And you can do that. Go ahead if you want to laugh. Get it out now. Okay, dung. It's a funny word. Um, but I can assure you it's no laughing matter. It's no laughing matter at all. This, this is not only a literally unpleasant and humiliating thing, but it symbolizes the ultimate cost, which is a broken relationship with God. The word dung here refers actually, yes, to the excrement of the animal, but also to those parts of the animal that must be removed and burned outside of the camp for their animal sacrifices. So this would be the contents of the intestines, of course, the entrails, the flesh, the head, the legs, So the significance here is not all of these parts, necessarily. And it's not only the humiliation of the priests, as they have humiliated God with their unfit offerings. But this act and this curse and this act of placing dung on their faces and their offerings is to ultimately degrade the priests to make them unfit and unclean to perform their official duties. And then ultimately, it means for them to be carried away outside of the city with all of the other unholy things that do not belong there and burned up. So God says he's going to take their maimed and unfit offerings, he's going to smear it on their faces and take them outside of the city with him, proclaiming them unfit and unholy and not to be in communion with God. I think this is where we all take a big gulp. This is awful. Remember, sin is, is costly. 
So the evil priest needed to either repent or be swept away from the sanctuary altogether. Moving on, verse 5. Let's read together. My covenant with him was one of life and peace. This is referring to Levi. And I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. So here we jump back and, and God gives us a glimpse into what, okay, what should it look like? There's obviously some awful things happening. What did God intend? And I think what we see here is, is very s- simple. I think there's a lot here, but we're just going to keep it simple. Obedience to God's law brings life, and disobedience brings death. Obedience to God's law brings peace, and disobedience brings discord. And all of this should be motivated by reverent fear and awe. All of our obedience should be motivated by this honoring of the Lord. As Proverbs tells us, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom or the beginning of knowledge. So God is simply saying, when you follow my commands and live according to the way I've set out for you, you'll walk peacefully and upright with me. And you will also help others to do so. And this is where the idea starts to come in of your sin is not private. And I would also argue that your righteousness is also not private. You share that as well. And that's what it's getting at here. And this is a, a good quote that I was like, I was reminding myself this morning. It's from Oswald Chambers, which I believe speaks to the issue here about fear. He says this, when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. And I can assure you this morning, I was terrified. <laughs> I woke up and my heart was racing this morning. And as I thought through the things that I was worried about, it's all about me. So I was preaching to myself, when you fear God, fear nothing else. I think that's something good that we could take away. And I just wanted to read some of the Psalms to you because I think it really captures this idea of what it looks like to walk in peace and uprightness with the Lord. The Psalms are a beautiful reminder to just either hear or to recite or um, to memorize as well. Even, um, uh, what's the Psalm? I just forgot it now. Well, in Psalm 119, Psalm 119 is the longest one. It has almost 200 verses, and it's pretty much all about God's law and keeping a man's way pure. I'll just read this for you. I think it's, it's nice to hear this. It says, how can a young man keep his way pure? And he says, by guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, O God. Teach me your decrees. With my lips I recount all the words and all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I will meditate on your precepts and consider all of your ways. 
I delight in your statutes. I will not neglect your word. And I think those words, as we just let them wash over us, it's like, oh my, it's like the law, the law, the law, where the law is beautiful. And it's almost hard to identify, but I think when we, we put it in context of the story of Malachi, we see the truth that's there and feel that and understand that God, God doesn't want, he doesn't want to let Jesus come and be killed. I would say that's not his desire. He wants us to, he would rather that we just obeyed. The fact is that we just didn't. And I think this just speaks to the fact God yearns and, and wants our obedience. And I think one thing we can take away from this, especially as we move forward in the next section, is uh, just by way of application, I think we should memorize God's word. We should write it on, your heart, on our hearts, if you will. And I think that's something that the Spirit can use in, in moments where we really need it to recall that scripture and bring it to our minds and say, remember. And that's something else we're going to see later is that forgetfulness leads to faithlessness. I think it's a good thing to be memorizing scripture. Let's keep going. So we've just seen uh, in verse 7, it says, For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, just as we read in the psalm as well. The people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is a messenger of the Lord of hosts. Um, now we're going to see the other way around, verse 8. But you have turned aside from the way, meaning God's law, the way he had set out for them. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people inasmuch as you do not keep my ways but show partiality in your instruction. So here, here's just a very clear example. Our sin is not private. We see the good teacher. The priests are called to be the teachers of God's laws and commands. The good teacher guards that truth and knowledge and instructs others well, and they should seek that from them. Here we see what the bad teachers are doing, and it's happening right now in, in Malachi at this time. They've corrupted the covenant of Levi. They've caused others to stumble. And I think Jesus himself gives us a really vivid imagery about how it's one thing to sin on your own and disobey God, which is truly sin and separates you from the Lord, but it is actually another thing to cause others to stumble as well. Jesus puts it like this in his gospel according to Mark. He's referring to the little ones or the children, and he's also kind of also could be referring to those who maybe have just newly believed. And he says, even for those, he says, if you cause them to stumble, it would be better for that person, or him here, if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Our sin is not a private matter. It affects others. It affects those around us. And it is a grave evil in the sight of the Lord. So we should seek to walk in obedience ourselves. And in doing so, we should bring others with us. And we should guard that wisdom and that knowledge and that way of life. And by way of application here as well, I, I want to read this passage from Hebrews 13. You don't have to turn there. Uh, this is Hebrews 13, 15 through 17. It says, Through Jesus, therefore who is the great high priest, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name and do not forget to do good and to share with others. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. 
do this, that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. And I think simply speaking, just a practical thing, I, I really think the leaders in the church have a grave, <laughs> it's an awesome task, but it is a difficult one. And I can hopefully speak on behalf of Rick, since he's not up here, and say we, we really need to support him and his family. I mean, practically, we need to be praying for him um, and any of our leaders. And not that we all don't have the charge to proclaim God's gospel in the world, um, but he is leading us and guiding us, and it is a difficult task. And, and I think we should pray for him and his family. And we'll find out um, how family life is affected in, in just a moment. But we need to be praying for that all the way around, for his obedience leading our obedience. And, and he, he needs us just as any leader would need um, the people uh, to support. So let's move forward in the text here. Kind of changing to a new argument. Catching up in verse 10. Malachi asks a couple of questions here. He says, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. Okay, so he starts with his two questions. Really, uh, it really should be just sort of rhetorical. The, the answer is yes. I mean, that, that's what's happening here. He, sa- he reminds them of God as their creator or uh, what would be conjured as their, their sovereign maker, he who rules and reigns over everything. And also he is their father. He is the one that brought them into being as a nation. So this would probably draw their minds back um, it should draw their minds back as they speak about the covenant of their fathers there to what happened in Exodus. In Exodus, God brought the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. In Exodus 4.22, God calls the people of Israel his firstborn son. So at the beginning here, Malachi's, it's almost as if to say, don't you remember what God has done? that God has chosen you and delivered you and cared for you throughout history from the time of your ancestors. So this is an argument here that he begins with to reveal to the Israelites that they have always had a special relationship with God and now they profane it by treating it lightly and treating it for their own gain. So Malachi is simply saying, don't forget where you came from and don't forget who called you. God has made you, and he has called you to a covenant relationship with him. So then he asks, so why are you faithless to one another? Or it also could be translated, why are you faithless to your brothers? And and this is really just getting at the idea that, hey, we're a family. The people of God are a family. And if God has chosen you and called you out to be his people and has been faithful to you throughout the generations, why are you now being unfaithful to me and unfaithful to one another? How does that make any sense? When you commit these abominations and atrocities, you profane the holy temple of God, 
and the holy nation of Israel. And the verse that comes to mind for me is in John 13, 35. God gives his disciples a new commandment, and he says, this commandment I give to you, um, the, the world will know that you are my disciples. How? By your love for one another. So we need to realize that the New Testament is speaking to us as well. This is the people of Israel, but we are also the chosen people of God. And what he's asking us to do is to love one another well. And where does that come from? It comes first from the greatest commandment out of our love for God. So we obey God, we love God, we love him, and therefore then we will also obey the commandment that is like it. We will love our neighbor as ourselves. So the Israelites are a, a family all together. And when they commit atrocities against the Lord, they also commit atrocities against one another. And so now we see also, let's see, verse, the end of verse 11 there. It references Mary, the daughter of a foreign god. So we're going to move into sort of another argument, another thing that's going on in the community and basically what he's saying is he, here in general is that you have given me away, you have given my covenant relationship with you as a people away, and you have chased after another, uh, another covenant. You have chased after another woman, if you will. You have chased after another God that is not me and have begun to worship it through these atrocities. And I would argue probably for many of them, simply they've chased after the God of themselves. Uh, there were obviously pagan gods and other gods around uh, which is clear that they were struggling with. Um, but they were also using the sacrifices and everything for themselves as well. And I think, again, we, we should feel the same gravity here in verse 12 that we felt at the beginning. What does he say? May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. So when you disobey in this way, guess what? You're going to get taken out of the city and you're going to be cut off and you're going to be out of the family and out of the relationship with God. But remember, our, our sin is super costly and our sin is not private. When we sin, we're not only cut off, but it affects the generations to come as we've just seen here. So moving into this issue uh, of intermarriage. Let's read forward here, verse 13. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So, we know from uh, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah a little bit more about what's going on around this time period with, with the problem of intermarriage. So we're going to see two problems. One, intermarriage. Two, divorce. So let's talk about intermarriage first. Intermarriage, imagine yourself. So you're young Israelites. You met this beautiful girl. You got married. You grew old together. And you, you married her at the prime of her zeal for life and her youthful beauty. And now you've found yourself with all of these other foreign gods and foreign people around, and you've decided for yourself, I don't think I want my old wife anymore. I think I'd rather have this young, foreign, exotic beauty here. And so 
uh, I'm going to leave her and marry this other young woman. That's basically what's happening here. So these men are coming to the, the altar of the Lord, and they're, they're, they're asking, why has he not accepted with favor our sacrifices? And God says, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, and you have been faithless, and I have seen it. Remember, sin is not a private matter. If no one else has seen it, there is still one who sees it. The men at the time probably were thinking, hey, God, th- this is a civil matter. This is, this is a contract between her and me. And I think God is clear to point out in the next verse here that it's not a civil contract between just you and another adult. He says this did, in verse 15, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. We'll get to that second part uh, in just a moment. So he's kind of, he's referring back to Adam and Eve here. They they were bound by the same breath and the same spirit. And the union and the the covenant of marriage, as pictured there, had God right in the middle of it. He was the glue that was holding it together. And he's saying, this is, this marriage covenant, it's not something on paper that you just sign. This is something that's near and dear to the way that I've actually created you. And when you dishonor that, you dishonor the very representation of what I have created to be my marriage of you, the church, to Christ himself. So when you defile the covenant of marriage, you misrepresent what God is for us, his people, which is a grave evil. And so think about intermarriage. One of the issues is, is they're messing up the covenant of God. Here's the other issue. We learn from Nehemiah that actually these men were marrying foreign women. And then the kids were growing up. And guess what? The kids couldn't speak the language of the Israelites. They spoke the language of their foreign mother. Now, it's not that speaking another language is a sin. um, But what does that speak to? It speaks to when, when you intermarry with someone who does not believe and hold to the same God and values that you do. Guess what's going to happen? Your kids are going to get raised in a mixed arena where they're going to learn things from the values of both parents. Now, I I want my words here about marriage today. Um, I want to say them gently and and lovingly. Um, I I am a single man myself. I I don't have that personal experience, although, of course, I have parents and I have friends who are married and have seen and heard stories. So please take what I'm saying with, with grace and with understanding, um, but because marriage is hard and raising kids is, is incredibly difficult, um, but, but I think the reality is, is what's coming from the word of God here is that intermarriage is something that defies what he created marriage to be, and the consequence of that is not just for you, and it's not just for the two of you, it is also for your children, and when you raise them in a home with mixed values, the generations to come are more likely to worship the gods, these foreign gods, than the true God, the one and only God. And so this is, a, this is a big issue for the Lord. The second one he, he brings up, and we've already been talking about this, is, is divorce. Um, so let's, let's read on and we'll, we'll close up with talking about this last point. 
let's, uh, let's pick it up in verse 15 here again. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. That is the purpose of marriage, and, and one of the purposes of marriage is to bring up godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. So again, just kind of coming back to the beginning of this paragraph, you can hear this moping and groaning over these men, like, why have you not accepted our offerings? And the Lord says, because you have not remained faithful in your marriages. So to give you an idea, at best at that time, a divorced woman would walk with her head held low in disgrace back to her family and actually would be taken in and cared for. At worst, she's left out on the street and completely uncared for by no one. Which clearly, I think we can see, is not what God intended. To divorce a woman is just to leave her with no one to care for her. This is a grave uh, evil in the eyes of the Lord. So these men who once said, I do, as we say, I do to in sickness and in health and until death do us part, we're now saying, I don't. Marriage is a covenant that God designed to display his steadfast love, his selfless care, his inseparable bond and union, and it was abandoned for the red-hot desire that I believe we all have, if we're honest with ourselves, for the next best thing, whether that's marriage or anything else. So biblical teaching on divorce here, as it mentions, it, it does consider allowances for such an act and does talk through particular circumstances of marriage and what ought to be done in different cases. Um, but for our purposes here today, and, and just to remain faithful to the text today, because there is a lot to mention, a lot to talk about, suffice it to say this, God hates divorce. He hates it. It does not image what he created in the manner um, that he set out for us. And that this teaching can be sobering both for those of us who are married and struggling maybe with different circumstances in your marriage. And I would just urge you to, to call out for help, reach out for help. We're a family and a community that wants to love one another, help one another. Don't, don't let it be something that, that, that you just have as private and behind closed doors. Um, talk about it, get help. Obviously pray about it and talk to God about it. But, but bring others in, those who are wise in the church community to help you out with that. And for those that are single, as I am, this can all help so be a really sobering message. For some of us, um, you just really long to be married. Um, and because of the way that God has called you to marriage, may maybe you've had to pass up on certain situations. Maybe, maybe there's someone who you've really just adored and has, has been, um, you felt like a great match for you, but does not know the Lord themselves. This is a sobering teaching because God is calling you to, to wait, I believe, and to pass that up. I believe that union would not be right, truly, without the Spirit binding your hearts and minds together in that union. So I want to say that with tenderness. I, I think it's a tough 
it's a really tough teaching, and our emotions are so wrapped up in, in, in our love uh, in those relationships. Um, but I think God's word is clear here, and, and many theologians actually argue this is the, probably the strongest teaching on marriage in all of scripture. So I think we need, we need to hear those lord, words and let, let them sink in. And I, there's simply just a call here. He says it twice. So guard yourselves and your spirit and do not be faithless. I think what he means by that is, is use sound judgment. It, recall the law of the Lord. Recall what he said and guard the spirit that's in you. Guard that teaching just as you would guard the word that it says in the Psalms. Guard that closely. So I'll close with this. I want to read this, uh, this word by a commentator by the last name of Deguid. I think he puts it really well. He says, this is what Israel deserved to hear. We, we've talked about all these things that they've done wrong. This is what they deserve to hear. You are an utterly faithless people. You have broken your covenant commitments to me and to one another. You have trashed your marriage vows and abused those placed under your care. Don't bring your sacrifices and offerings or offer your fake tears of repentance any longer. Here is your certificate of divorce. This marriage is over. Go away. I'm through with this relationship. And I think in truth, we all deserve to hear that. But I'm thankful that that's not the story of Scripture. And that's not the message of the whole, what we call the redemptive narrative, because there is redemption for us. And lastly, I'm just going to read a passage from Hebrews here that I think brings in the language of what we've been reading in the text today and really applies it well and, and relates it well to us today. It's Hebrews 4, 14. It says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet, he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And I think that's a good word for us to end on, to, to remember that. I would even encourage you to commit that to memory. That what was the job of the priest? It was to be the administer of worship and to mediate, to be the go-between between an unholy people and a holy God. Guess who does that for us? Jesus. And yet, because he came and took on flesh and human form, guess what? He knows what you're going through. He can relate to you. And trust me, I know, that seems far-fetched. That seems way out there. How can Jesus possibly know what it feels like to be addicted to the thing that I'm addicted to or drawn to this evil thing that I'm drawn to? But I would take God's word at face value and believe it, that Jesus understands and he knows and find comfort in that. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us 
in our time of need. If you've heard the gospel many times before, maybe it's your first time here, maybe you haven't heard the gospel before, but if, you, if you've listened to the words today, you're probably feeling hopeless <laughs> in many ways. I, I even just standing up here uh, feel kind of at a loss for words and, and, and hopeless. I mean, I'm the one actually up here teaching today, which has also felt heavy regarding this text. But here's the beautiful thing about the gospel. It's that God said it's not about what you do, although he wants us to obey. In fact, you've disobeyed, but guess what I'm, I'm going to come and do? I, I'm going to come to earth in human form on your behalf because you couldn't do this. I'm going to come in the person of Jesus, and I'm going to live the perfect life and obey God's laws you know, perfectly with a heart that wants to worship and honor the Lord. I'm going to do that on your behalf. And I'm, gonna, I'm going to be the sacrifice. I'm going to be the one who gets carried out of the city and burned. And actually, in this case, hung on a cross and die on your behalf so that you don't have to. And that message can be felt in your heart today. Simply, if you, if you believe in your heart and then confess with your mouth that Jesus is truly Lord, that he is God and that you are not, and that he has come to save you today, and, and in fact, that he is the hero of all of life. So if you would now, let's pray together and just ask God to, to give us uh, soft hearts and, and wisdom as we go today. Heavenly Father, uh, we're humbled by your word today. We, we've seen the great cost of sin that has truly separated us from your presence. We've seen the cost that it took in Jesus to save us from that. We've also seen how our sin is not merely private for us. It's not something that merely affects us, but it affects our marriages, it affects our children, it affects our friends and family around us, and can actually affect our, our whole nation and the whole church. God, help us as we examine ourselves and evaluate ourselves according to your word. Help us to feel the weight of our sin, God. But likewise, help us then to see Jesus lifting the burden of that from us, that we can go and walk with freedom and obedience out of that beautiful message. God, stir in our hearts with your spirit today. Be with us as we go. Help us to love you first and then love one another well. We pray these things in your name, amen.